Um, we started last week into the book of Malachi, <clears throat> and I want to kind of recap what we looked at last week, and I also want to re, re-reset the um, cultural and historical setting of the book before we get into chapter 2. Uh, we've spent several months, maybe even a year, I don't know, <clears throat> we went through Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah, and what we were looking at there were uh, the children of God, the Israelites, had returned from exile, <clears throat> from Persia, Babylon. The Assyrians had overtaken the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., and then the Babylonians had come and taken uh, the southern kingdom of Judah into exile in 586 B.C., and then the Persians overtook the Babylonians, and as that happened, after that happened, God raised up a man named Cyrus, who was the king of Persia. And he proclaimed that any Israelite, any Jew who wanted to return to the city of Jerusalem was free to do so, because he was told that God wanted a temple built in Jerusalem for worship there. So that started the events of Ezra. Ezra 1 through 6 happened, then we looked at Esther, which fit in there historically in that uh, time frame. Then we looked at Ezra 7 through 10, which is when Ezra and his people came back. The temple had been rebuilt, but they weren't worshiping well. Uh, they weren't doing things right. So Ezra came back and reestablished the Word of God and the law of God. And then Nehemiah caught word that the people in Jerusalem weren't doing well and that the walls were broken down and the, the city was in disgrace. So Nehemiah came back with a passion from the very heart of God in his heart to not only rebuild the walls, but to establish life and worship again in the city of Jerusalem, the city that the psalmist had called the joy of the whole earth, the place where God dwelt, which Ezekiel had prophesied years before that he saw the glory departing Jerusalem out of the temple. But Nehemiah came back, they rebuilt the walls in 52 days, they established regular worship in the temple and the holidays and the holy days and the calendar again. Then Nehemiah went away and he came back after some time and they were right back to doing the things that they had said they wouldn't do when they made a covenant with God, a verbal written covenant saying we won't intermarry, we won't let our people desecrate the Sabbath and they were doing the very things that they weren't supposed to do. Then we come to Malachi, which is probably around the time or soon after Nehemiah had come back from Persia the second time. And what we found out last week was these Israelites, these Jews, were still or had gone back to doing the things that they said they would not do. And God was not speaking in a nicey-nicey voice last week in Malachi 1. His question was, if I'm a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? I am a great king. And God is calling for honor. God is calling them out for the sins that they are committing. And He started naming them. <clears throat> and as we get into Malachi chapter 2 today, we won't finish chapter 2. Uh, the flow of thought stops at verse 16. We're going to see that God is not in a mood to play church. God is not in a mood for us to dismiss Him. God is not in a mood. God is not one who can overlook our sin with a wink and a nod. 
And again, today and throughout this book, which is four big chapters, God is going to remind us that He is faithful and we are faithless. And you say, but I'm a believer. I have faith. And I say, praise God for that. And we'll see that near the end. But I would also say, we sang this morning. Um, I, w- I should pull it up because I think it's important. We sang this morning in, in the newest, the last song that we sang, that God is worthy. What is the words? I'm going to have to pull it up. God is worthy of all praise in our thoughts, in our deeds, in everything that we do. And as such, our thoughts and our deeds betray us in this covenant that God has established with us. Every sin that we commit is a transgression against the covenant that God has established with us and for us. And what I'm afraid of this morning and what I've been convicted of all week long is that I take that covenant very lightly. I take the grace of God very nonchalantly. And I look at the holiness of God in laziness and lethargy. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. And I think what we'll see this morning in our passage and through the message is, it's not always true. If you would stand, we're going to read Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And we stand when the scripture is read because we do believe these are the very words of God. They are inerrant and they are profitable for us, so we show our respect by standing. Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts." 
And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. The very words of God. Let's pray. God, I am convicted afresh and anew this morning at the rebuke of your word. I am convicted of my faithlessness, my laziness, my lust and my greed, my selfishness. I pray that this morning by the power of your spirit and by the power of your written and spoken word, God, that you would convict us all afresh and anew, that you would draw us to you, and that we would confess our sins to you and to one another, and that you would be glorified by the fruit that comes from what we sow into our lives today, God. Holy Spirit, have your way in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Shocking. I think if we sit and ponder these words that we just read, for just a little bit, we're going to see this is shocking. This is not the God of a storybook Bible. Not that there's anything wrong with some of those. But this is the great God of heaven. Let's start chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. We saw last week in chapter 1 that part of what was being said was being said directly to the priests. Verse 6 of chapter 1 said, And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. That was last week. Now, here in chapter 2, we find that again. God is directing pointed conversation to the priests. And we saw last week that the New Testament calls all believers priests, ministering to God and man. So there's surely application for all of us here, so don't be put off by the thought that this is just for professional preachers, because that's not what he's saying. So what does he say to the priests here? He says plainly that this command was for the priestly order. We'll see later that he will refer back to the covenant he made with the offspring of Levi as a way of dealing with the priests specifically. And what is he asking for from these priests? Is he asking for some crazy dedication? Is he asking for a vow or something extreme or extraordinary? Look at verse 2. He says, If you will not listen... If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. So what is God asking? What's He commanding here? 
He's asking the priests to take to heart what he is saying. And he's asking them to give honor to his name. That don't sound like too much, does it? You wouldn't think so. Make what God is saying important to you and honor what He's asking you to do. And we saw last week that that honor was about a father so that we have a relationship, an intimate personal relationship with Him. It's not just about being scared, even though there is some of that, knowing that He is in authority over us. But the honor was about forging a relationship with Him. And this is particularly crucial for priests because if they don't take God seriously... If they are lax in their conduct and in their conveying God's instructions to the people, how seriously will the people take what's being said? How seriously will the people take God's commands and service if His priests aren't doing what they're saying they're going to do? When the priests fail, it's a public display of disgrace and honor. And the culture we live in today loves to jump on the failures of the high-profile preachers, don't they? And they should. It's a major deal. If you have a platform that is publicly proclaiming God and His kingdom, your moral failure is public. And as such, there are more eyes on you, more attention focused on you. And the thing is, we all have that platform as Christians. But the ones that are on TV and the ones that have large churches and people buying their books and stuff, when they fail, it's a big deal and it should be. I guess all of us can look back at a time when a quote-unquote well-known preacher was accused or pegged with immoral behavior and how the news reported it and we felt shame or sorrow because they kind of represented the views of us all. And so they brought what we believe to disgrace. And I'm not just talking about televangelists, thank goodness, but I'm also talking about somebody, other people who have been considered stalwarts of the faith and who fell into public sin. It's a big blow to the public perception of the faith and the God who demands that faith. God is seeking to be glorified. But these types of things tend to bring scorn and disdain for God Himself because obviously He's not able to really change these so-called people of His. They're just like the rest of us, but with a smattering of church talk blended in. And that's exactly what God is saying here in Malachi. You priests, you workers in my house, the public picture of my word and my worship, you are not taking my words to heart. You are making my worship look pale and empty because you don't care and you're indifferent to my glory. And what does God say He'll do if, we don't, if they don't take His command to heart and honor His name? He says, I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Now that's a big deal. God, who we petition so often for, for blessings and good things, says He will send the curse upon them. And He will curse their blessings. He actually says He's already cursed their blessings because they haven't laid it to heart. Listen to what I just said. God is going to curse them. Now that might make you squirm a little bit. It makes me squirm a little bit. Does God curse people? It sure looks like it. We don't like to think about that, but it's part of the Word of God, right? 
All the way back in the time of the first sin, God cursed those who didn't take His word to heart, didn't He? Genesis 3, God cursed the serpent, God cursed the woman, and God cursed the man for their part in the sin that was committed there. And all through the history of the Israelites, God said plainly that obedience brought blessings and disobedience brought curses. And I think we can fail to see, I don't think that we can fail to see in looking at Malachi today that these curses come from God. I know people who would look at me and say, God does not bring curses. What do they do with this? How do you not? I will curse your blessings. I will send the curse upon you. Who is I? It's God. Why am I belaboring this? Because I think it's incredibly important for us to see this. God will curse the disobedience of His people. You're like, well, this is Old Testament. Stay with me. We've got a lot more Bible to cover here. Here in Malachi, God says plainly that He is going to curse the priests and has already done so. He actually says, I'll send the curse upon you. What, what curse is this? I'm not 100% sure, but in Deuteronomy, the Israelites hear the law proclaimed before they actually go into the promised land for the first time. And in chapters 27 and 28, they publicly proclaim the curses that would come upon them if they, if they disobeyed the law. And it's awful. I wanted to read it all, but it's too long. It's 66 verses. 66 verses of curses. I'll just skim to give you an idea of what's going on. We won't read them all. And I'll skim it with an eye on the fact that this is probably the curse that God is referring to here in Malachi. In Deuteronomy 28, 15, it says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. That's how this is prefaced. And let me just, again, let me just brush over. Here's a sampling of this, these curses and what will be cursed. God says, The city, the field, your basket, your kneading bowl, the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, pestilence, wasting disease, fever, inflammation, fiery heat, drought, blight, defeat before your enemies. You shall betroth a wife, but another man will ravish her. Grievous boils, the worm, the cricket, hunger, thirst, nakedness, and on and on and on. If you disobey this command, these are the curses that will come upon you. Again, read it for yourself. I challenge you to do that. It's Deuteronomy 27, 15 through 26, and Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. 66 verses of curses if God's people aren't faithful to the commands that He has given them. And all through it, it says that God will be the one who is bringing all this upon them because of their disobedience. And remember, these Israelites had already seen defeat and exile, these in, in Malachi, had already seen defeat and exile, which put them in a place where they had to come back and rebuild the temple and the walls. So they as a nation had seen this curse before. And they seemed to have forgotten that. So now they are at risk of repeating their curse-bringing disobedience. They're in the midst of it. And so... God levels these charges and clear warnings to the priests of His people to help avoid this happening again. And as a mercy, 
He's already let them feel some of these curses and consequences, hoping a taste would turn them around before the full force comes. So let's look at verse 3, which is the most shocking in this passage, I think. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. God says He will rebuke their offering, which could be seed, which could be people or field. I believe it refers to their children. The priest's disobedience will bring problems for their children. And isn't that always the case? Just like the priest's lazy worship led to problems for the people of God, their lax lifestyle will also bleed over into their children. It always does. And let this be a strong call to parents in general. Your worship is being passed to your children. What will become of it? Will it lead to their being blessed or will it lead to their being rebuked? More on that in application, but it's sobering to think of here. And then look at the rest of this verse. I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Oh my. To say this is shocking is kind of an understatement. God says He will spread dung on their faces. And not just dung, but the dung of their offerings. See, all animals offered were prepared a certain way. And the skin and the dung and other things were to be taken outside the camp. And it's a sin offering. Look at Exodus twenty nine fourteen. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Think dung gate. Remember we talked about the dung gate? That's where they carried the dung out of the city to burn as a sin offering. Even the skin and the dung were part of the offering to God. But here in Malachi, God is saying that He is going to take the dung from the crippled blind animals that they were offering and spread it on their faces. And then that they would be taken away with it, with the dung which is a picture of judgment, which is a picture of final fire. What's that sound like? Sounds like hell to me. There's no pretty way to say that. There's no way to couch it that makes God seem nice. He is angry. He is offended. And He is going to spread dung on their faces and have them taken outside the camp and burned with the dung. This is, to say the least, a very big deal to God. Listen, listen, listen. He will not take lightly the sloppy worship His priests are presenting to Him and that they are passing on to His people. He's not going to sit idly by and say, Oh, I wish they'd do something different. He's going to spread dung on their faces. 
and have them carried outside the camp and burned with judgmental fire. Verses 4 and 5. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Verse 6, I'm sorry. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. And now we get to the heart of this chapter in my estimation. God is saying when the judgment of verse 3 with the dung and the being burned is doled out, when that punishment comes, then the Israelites will know that God wasn't kidding when He made the covenant of peace that He made with Levi. Now that covenant of peace is seen in Numbers 25, 10-13. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Now that takes some elaboration, some further elaboration. What's God referring to when he says Phineas turned back God's wrath and was jealous with God's jealousy? It goes back to when Moses came down from the mountain, receiving the Ten Commandments and the Word of God. He was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, 40 nights. He comes down with the tablets in his hand. And what are the Israelites doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. Aaron's like, they gave me gold, I put it in the fire and out came this calf. Very nonchalant, right? Accident just happened. And Moses was angry. And Moses' anger represented God's anger. And in Moses' shock and anger, this happens in Exodus 32, 25 through 29. This is what God was referring to in the passage there from Numbers. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose... For Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now note that. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained, sons of Levi, for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. What brought blessing and a covenant of peace to the Levites, their zeal, and their killing false worshipers in their midst. Now let me just say, we're not, we're not going to call for anybody to be killed today, okay? Relax. But what brought them blessing in this covenant of peace was their zeal, and their being obedient to the point of killing their sons and their brothers who were worshiping false gods in their midst. Hmm. 
Their zeal for the pure worship of God led to God making a perpetual covenant of peace with the Levites. And back in Malachi, God refers to this covenant and says it is a covenant of life, peace, and fear. He points out that when the covenant was made, Levi lived in right response to this covenant and this God. Look back at 5 and 6 in Malachi 2. My covenant with him, with Levi and his descendants, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. He feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. The priests, and particularly the Levites, upheld their end of the covenant that God had made with them, and it brought blessing to them and those they ministered to. And this was God's design for them. And God is saying through Malachi that His covenant is unchanged because God's covenants are everlasting. And they will stand even in the midst of the Levites' unfaithfulness. And even if God has to spread dung on their face and deliver them over to judgment for them to remember His faithfulness in keeping His covenant, then so be it. If it takes cursing them so that they might return to their zeal, then so be it. Why? What is the big deal? We're talking death and dung, and judgment, and zeal. Why? Because there's too much at stake in what they're doing. Verses 7 through 9. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. See, here's the point. God has a succinct purpose for these priests. They're supposed to guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from their mouth. They are the ones who should be pointing people to God and His commandments. They should be both teaching and embodying what it is to live in a way that gives God glory. And here, God is speaking specifically of what they are teaching, and He says that they have turned aside from the way and caused many to stumble by their instruction. Woe be unto the preacher who gives false instruction from the Word of God. And then God says that they have corrupted the covenant of Levi by not keeping God's ways, and they have shown partiality in their instruction which sounds to me like the priests and the Levites were lining their pockets by giving preference to the wealthy people and ignoring the poor. It doesn't say that explicitly, but it sure seems to be implied in that word partiality. So God says He makes them despised and abased before all the people. The venerable position of priest and Levite is now snorted at, like they were snorting at doing God's work back in chapter 1. How revered are the ministers of God in our society today? TV shows, movies, cartoons. What's the priest? He's an idiot. He, he's a sissy, a mamby-pamby, meal-mouthed guy that's hoping somebody will give him $5,000 for preaching a message to his dog. 
That's how he's conveyed in today's culture. You figure that's part of the curse? It's what's going on here. But how far has their bad teaching spread? That's what the rest of this passage today starts pointing out. Verses 10 through 12. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now, God starts putting His finger on the sins of the people. We've looked at the priests and their bad teaching, and we're seeing how this bad teaching is being lived out in the people. He addresses here Judah, which would be the nation as a whole. And he appeals to the universality of mankind to go past just Jewish roots before he gets to the specifics of his work with Israel. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? We and they belong to God. He created us and He is the source of all life. If He's Father and Creator, then what? Then why are we faithless to one another? Now that's a little weird, don't you think? I would think he would appeal to being faithless to him, but he turns their eyes to the profaning of the covenant of their fathers and them being faithless to each other. And here you go. Their disobedience, their covenant breaking has brought problems for them. The curses of God are falling and they are reaping the consequences, so their covenant breaking is a corporate problem, not just an ethereal, oh no, God is upset problem. And what they have done that is what have they done that is causing these issues specifically? They are again marrying foreign wives. We talked about this some last week. You've got to be kidding me. How many times have we said specifically they're doing that again? He says they've married the daughter of a foreign god. And as a result, God is cutting people off from out of the congregation of the people of God and their numbers are shrinking. And they can't take much shrinking if they're going to remain a viable community in this part of the world. But their marriage problems don't stop with marrying foreign women. We'll get to that in a second. What do you see in the church in America today? Is it growing? Or is it shrinking? Something to think about. Now let's look at 13 through 16 as we finish the passage. We're not finished preaching. So. Their marriage problems go just beyond foreign wives. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Man, what a four verses. <laughs> in the bringing up of the second thing that they are doing, 
God prefaces, the first one was they're marrying foreign wives. But God prefaces the second thing with the fact that they are covering His altar with tears and weeping and groaning, asking, why isn't God accepting our offering? And what reason does God give them? He doesn't talk about greed or lust or hatred or prejudice or social injustice. No, He talks about divorce. He just skewered them for intermarrying with foreign women. And now he addresses their casual attitude toward marriage, marriage in general, and the fact that they're just divorcing their wives like it's not a big deal. Does this happen in our culture today? Why does he not regard their offering? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now, he could be talking when he says faithless about adultery, but I think the whole context suggests divorce, which we'll see in a minute. God says he was witness when they were marrying their wives in their youth. God was there, and not like God is with everybody, but he was there in a very real and tangible way. He was witness. He saw it. He recorded it in the heavenly records. And he recorded it as what? He recorded their marriage as a covenant. Not a contract. Not a nonchalant business agreement that was good for both parties. But a covenant. A solemn binding agreement between the husband, the wife, and God Almighty. What God has joined together? Let no man put asunder, right? Did He not make them one? And listen to this. With a portion of, their, of, of the Spirit in their union? Think about that for a second. God's very own Spirit was the glue that bound these couples together. The very power of God was present to cement this relationship for good, for life. And why? What was God getting out of this covenant? Two happy people? Sure, Was he getting a picture of the coming Christ in his church? Yes, according to the New Testament. But that's not all. God was also seeking godly offspring. God was seeking a couple who would join together in love and in their love would produce children who would know and follow God as their faithful parents had, thus multiplying the visible glory of God on the earth. This has been God's design from the beginning. And it's so much like the relationship of the priests to the people. Parents, you are the priests in this analogy. You are ministering between God and your children and how you treat each other, mom and dad, how you worship God, and how you teach your kids is of vital importance. Vital. And let me say, when mom and dad divorce, it's like taking a chainsaw between the relationship of the kids and God. Now, am I saying that kids of divorce can't know Jesus? I am absolutely not saying that. But I am saying it causes all kinds of problems. I talked to too many teenagers at the therapy office that their problems started when mom and dad started fighting and split up. And divorce is not a scarlet letter that God can't forgive you for. I'm not saying that either. 
And I read a tweet last night. You've got to mention a tweet to be relevant in today's culture, right? Listen to what this, this is really sad. It's a pastor. He says this, and I quote, I'm so tired of sitting on camp porches crying with teenagers because their parents are divorced or in the process of divorce. The epidemic of divorces and the disregard for the holy institution of marriage in our culture and in our world today is leading to a more and more godless society. The enemy knows what is the greatest institution in our culture and he is attacking marriage with full force. He's not stupid. And God sees this pattern and he is dishonored by it. Just like he was in Malachi's time. So then what? So he says, So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So guard yourselves in your spirit. This is an internal issue, a heart issue, a core being issue. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Guard yourselves when choosing a spouse, young people. Guard yourselves when you're planning your wedding. Guard yourselves at your honeymoon and guard yourselves when things get hard and rocky because they're going to. You can live happily ever after, but that doesn't mean you're always going to be happy. It's going to be hard. So guard yourselves in your heart. That's why I love this Song of Solomon study we're doing. It ain't perfect. But it's following a couple through the Song of Solomon from meeting to near the end of their life. Through intimacy and through conflict and through courting and through dating. Guard yourselves in your spirit. And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. None of you. Why? Because verse 16, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God says plainly that the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, which is why I said earlier that the thrust of this passage was on divorce, God says plainly that the man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence. And he punctuates that statement by calling himself again the Lord of hosts. We talked about that last week, the Lord of angel armies. That seems a little bit odd again, doesn't it? Why would God equate divorce with violence? I can't say for sure, but it seems that there is a tearing asunder of something that God has joined together. What God has joined together... Let no man put asunder. The glue of the Holy Spirit is torn loose and one flesh becomes two. It is violent. It is like death. So God says to guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Keep the covenant with your wife and therefore keep the covenant with your God. Don't be faithless. Priests, Levites, husbands, wives, don't be faithless. Christians, don't be faithless. Be covenant keepers, not covenant breakers. That's what God's saying here. So let's apply this scathing passage today. The whole passage is about being unfaithful to covenants with God and with each other. 
priests, Levites, Jews, husbands, wives. God's anger, God's dishonor flows from people not doing their part to honor the covenants they are in with God and with each other. So we have to ask ourselves, are we in covenant with God? Are we in covenant with each other? And if so, how are we doing in honoring these covenants? And even more concisely, how faithful are we in our very spirits? Three levels that we want to look at in application. The personal level, the marriage level, and the corporate level. How are we doing personally in our marriage and corporately in our covenant keeping? Personally. Let me just ask you something very simply. Do you keep your word? Does it matter if you, oh, well, no big deal. Maybe you make an appointment with somebody, you're going to meet them at breakfast or something, and you don't make it. I stood Dawn up Friday. That really was not my fault. My alarm just didn't go off. I can't explain it. Does it matter if you break your word? Oh, well, they'll understand. Does it matter if you keep covenant with God on a personal level? What do you mean, keep my covenant? Do you do what He's asked you to do? Strike that last statement. Do you do what He has commanded you to do? Because I think we couch what we say so many times in permissive terms in our culture, especially personally. It's not my fault. My alarm didn't go off. It's not my fault. Things came up, and things do come up. Alarms don't go off. And I value that. It matters. How are you doing personally in keeping the covenant that we are in together? And we'll get to the corporate level of that lastly. But how are you doing with that in here? Within your very spirit. Covenant keepers do the work of God by the power of God to the glory of God. And they do it on a personal level. These people were sinning against each other. And they were breaking the covenant in their hearts between each other. Does it matter? Absolutely it matters. How many times have you made God a promise? God, if you get me out of this one, I promise I will never do this again. You get a bad report from the doctor. God, I promise I'm going to take better care of myself from here on out. You spend some money you shouldn't have spent. God, I promise I'm not going to spend any more money like this. Listen to me. God's done His part to keep His side of the covenant. And praise 
God, our salvation is not based on our performance. And I am not preaching this morning that you've got to be right and do right and not mess up so that you can be saved. I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form. But when you fail, when you sin, isn't it an affront to you? Does it grieve your heart? Does it grieve your spirit to break your promise to God? in light of the great grace that He has shown you and given you, does every thought and every deed matter because you're in covenant with a holy God on a personal level? Or do you just say, eh, He'll forgive me, or He already has. It's not a big deal. Those are not covenant-keeping type of words. It's a personal level. Marriage level. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm not married. Well, maybe one day you will be. Or maybe one day you was. And some of you sitting here are married today. Let me ask you a question. Are you being faithful either to the future covenant with your spouse, the present covenant with your spouse, or maybe the former covenant with your spouse? That's a hard question. Let's talk to the people who aren't married for a moment, who have never been married. You may get married one day. And your sin today can be an affront to that covenant. Are you honoring that covenant with your actions or inactions today? You should be. You say, well, that's crazy. I haven't made a covenant yet. But you will one day to forsake all others. You should keep yourself pure and ready for that day when you make that covenant. And you say, well, I've already messed that up. Start today. Start now. Today. Draw a line in the sand and ask God for His Spirit's power to help you preserve a covenant for your future spouse. Also, decide today, I will not marry an unbeliever. You say, well, that's crazy talk. It's not crazy talk. How many times do we see over and over and over these Israelites intermarrying with foreign women? And God's saying, it's a stumbling block to you and I'm commanding you not to do that. Decide today, I'm not going to marry somebody that doesn't love Jesus. And keep that covenant with the Spirit's power. Well, you can't help who you love. Bull. We don't believe in the Hollywood fairy tale, oh, I fell in love with somebody and I can't help it mentality. That's a fabrication and it's false. Love is a choice and love is perpetual action. And you can decide today that you will not intermarry with people who do not believe in Jesus. It's to your destruction that you do so. Now let's talk to those who are married for a moment. How are you doing in the covenant with your spouse? Well, we're still married. I ain't killed him yet. Love, cherish, honor, 
obey, forsaking all others visually, mentally, verbally, till death do us part. How are you doing in your covenant? Is all of your affection, is all of your sexual energy given to your spouse and nobody else? That's part of keeping the covenant. Can you look your spouse in the face and say, I will never divorce you? Because that's part of keeping the covenant too. And those of you who have been through divorce, the tragedy of divorce, it's awful and I'm sorry. And maybe you got out of a bad situation you needed to get it out of. God understands that. God understands that the covenant was broken and maybe it wasn't you who broke it. Are you honoring God with your life now, either as a divorced person or a remarried person? It all matters. Let me say this too on the marriage level. Are you doing your priestly work in the marriage covenant? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, see to it that you respect your husbands. And are you ministering to your children, if you have them, to pass on to them a faith that will be well spoken of to them and their offspring and their offspring and their offspring? We all have priestly work to do, but especially husbands and wives, mothers and fathers. How are you doing there? Or is it just not a big deal? Because that's what was going on in Malachi's day. It just wasn't a big deal. So God was going to spread dung on their faces and deliver them over to be burned. God says it's a big deal. Finally, how are you doing on a corporate level? We exercise covenant membership here. And I understand not everybody in this room is a covenant member of this group of people. and You're not bad or wrong if you're not. But if you are, why? Why? Well, that's what we do. No. No. If you are a covenant member of Providence Bible Church, it's because you have agreed in a solemn binding agreement by presenting yourself, you and your family up here in front of everybody, signing a piece of paper that says, I'm going to commit myself for the rest of my life, unless God brings me out of this place, to minister and serve to this group of people. These are the people that God has given me to worship Him with. Is that a big deal? Or is it, ah, I don't even remember when we signed. I want to bring it to your remembrance this morning. And I want you to know it's a big deal. Not because Jason and Don said so. Not because the guys that drew up the founding documents said it was a big deal. It's a big deal because you've made a covenant with these people and with God. And how you view that covenant and how you keep that covenant is a big deal. And it is a solemn, binding agreement that you should care about. And if you don't care about it, repent. Confess that sin and repent of it. And go back over the covenant. How many of you remember the covenant that you signed? It's in there on the wall. 
And how are you doing in completing the things that you said you would complete? Listen, I'm not trying to scare you into being here. God's going to wipe poop on your face if you don't come to church. That's not the goal here. The goal is to remind you that it's a big deal. In the worship of God. I'm getting there. <laughs> You're like, man, I don't, I don't like Malachi. Here's the deal. And this is what I want you to hear maybe more than anything this morning. We are, all of us, covenant breakers. Every one of us in this room. In sin, my mother conceived me, David said. Which means I was born a sinner. And so were you. We are all of us faithless in our very core in and of ourselves. Paul said, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's who we are in and of ourselves. All of us, individually and corporately, deserve to have dung smeared on our faces and face the very wrath of God. Because we have all, and we will all, dishonor God and not follow our own, and we will follow our own selfish whims, and we will bring disgrace upon His name. And I'm afraid that we don't really believe that. We think we're pretty good people who mess up every now and then. Or at worst, maybe we're just products of a deranged culture. We may not deserve heaven, but we surely don't deserve dung or hell or wrath or fury. We feel like we're maybe deserving of God being upset with us sometimes. Maybe putting us in time out or something. But listen to me. We are covenant breakers. We are faithless in and of ourselves. And we deserve the full force of the wrath of God. And that's terrible news. But we have to understand it. Because if we don't see that, we can't see the best news in the world. You see, God sent Jesus to walk this earth and to live a perfect life, fully deserving God's blessing and God's smile. But at the end of His life, Jesus was commanded by sinful men to carry a cross to a place outside the city, like where the dung was supposed to be carried. And there, outside the city, on that cross, Jesus Christ took the curse upon Himself for us. He was beaten, mocked, and crucified at the hands of sinful men. And then God poured out His wrath for my sins and for your sins upon Jesus. He did to Jesus what He should have done to us. Isaiah 53, 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. God the Father has put the Son to grief. And the curse for our sins was absorbed by Jesus. 
Galatians 3.13, Paul says it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the curse that should have been ours was taken by Jesus so we can enjoy peace with God now and the joy of heaven forever with no fear of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even as we fail and break the covenant day by day by day. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, and we are, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. That is the best news in the world. We deserve punishment and we get blessing. We break the covenant and God overcomes our faithlessness by His faithfulness. No dung on our faces, only the smile of God, the kinship of Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit if we have trusted Jesus to pay our sin debt and purchase our salvation. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. And you are no less deserving of the wrath of God now than you were before you met Jesus outside of the grace of God. I'm still faithless. And He's still faithful. And I get the blessing that Jesus should have received. Now Jesus entered into His rest and He is now King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And today we can make a choice to either follow Him or to spit in His face and not realize the punishment that He took for us. The choice is yours. Will you be faithful on an individual, a family, and a corporate level with the faithfulness of God in your life? That choice is yours. And one day you will give an account for what you've done with that choice. Let's pray. God, I am so glad that when I am faithless, you remain faithful. I am so glad that you have made me one with Christ so that you cannot deny me because you cannot deny yourself. And God, I am ashamed to say that day by day by day, I am faithless. I break this covenant that you have established with us. And you remind me that when I break the covenant, it's you who paid the penalty for that. It's you, Jesus, who absorbed the wrath of God for me. I should be delivered outside the city, but you were. I should have to pay for my sins, but you did. And I praise you, I thank you, I glorify you, and I pray that in my very innermost spirit that I would guard myself by the help of your spirit, not to try harder and do better, but to love you, God in a way that is worthy of the glory that you have shown us. I need your help, because I can't do this, but you can. We need your help, God. So help us to be faithful to each other, in our families, and in this place, so that you get glory and are not disregarded and pushed aside as an inconvenience. Jesus, you are Lord, and we confess that this morning. And ask for those who do not know you, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, convict them of their sins, 
Show them their need for a Savior. And may they lock eyes with Jesus this morning and know that He is that Savior. And may they confess Him with their mouth and believe in their heart that you, God, raised Him from the dead so that they may be saved. Have your way in your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just stand and receive benediction this morning. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can.